Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptics Bible Project. Happy to be back with you again today. We are going through Josh McDowell's The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And we're playing a, um, a recorded talk that Josh gave outlining his basic arguments that he makes in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and his other book, uh, More Than a Carpenter. Uh, last time, uh, we were looking at Josh's points about the manuscript tradition. He is making the case that the manuscripts that we have in the tradition are very early, and they come very close to the time they were actually written down by the original author. Also, that we just have so many manuscripts, and all of this is evidence that we should trust that what is in the documents is true. We are breaking down those arguments, but let's continue on and see where Josh goes from here. The second question is very critical, and that's this one. How many manuscripts do you have? So what do you mean? Well, the greater numbers, say this is the original and here's the copies, the greater number of the copies that you have, the easier it is to reconstruct the original, the autographer, and check out any errors or discrepancies. No, that's absurd because most of what most of the copies we have stem from a copy. So yeah, you may be able to reconstruct what that copy said, but if you're talking about getting back to the very earliest manuscripts, we just have no access to that. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's like an important thing to remember that like he really looks he really harps on like the bulk of the manuscripts that we have. Um, but the manuscripts that we have have been preserved in three traditions, um, the Alexandrian text type, the Western text type, and the Byzantine text type. They're, most of them are late, and some of the traditions are better at preserving the text than others. Um, so like, just looking at, like, oh, I have this many copies doesn't mean that those that many copies are good copies because it really depends on the scribes that were copying them. Um, and it depends on when they're dated. It's, a, it's just a more uh, complicated, reductive process than the way that he's making it sound. It's not as simple as just looking. You have more copies, so you can examine them, and, and that gets you closer. to. I mean, if you had a bunch of contemporary copies and you could compare them, that would be true. Um, but you don't have contemporary copies. You have copies from 100 years apart, from 75 years apart. You have a fragment here. You have a complete document from 300 years later. Um, so it's, it's a more complicated process than that. Yeah, and most of those manuscript traditions, though, they don't date back to the original autographs. Um, yeah. They date back to a copy. 
yeah. uh, because once once the church started exploding in the Roman world, you know they started producing lots of copies, but those copies were not based on uh, the original autographs anyway, and we have no access to the original autographs. And like I said earlier, the more fragments we find, the earlier fragments we find, the more variants we find. And the fact that we have almost nothing for the first 200 years of manuscripts that were being produced, um, that tells you that, um, I mean, there's people that think that, you know, entire sections of, there's scholars that would say entire sections of, of Paul's letters have been changed and altered. And we just have no access to it. They come to that uh, based on like a literary analysis of the words he uses and says this writing style is completely different here and there. And we have no access to that. And so it's very possible that all the copies that we have are based on something that had already been re redacted and edited. And then the entire game of telephone that happened after that was all based on that one copy. They say, yeah, there's changes and there's, there's, but they're all minor and, and, and we should have all the confidence in the world that it's all uh, accurate. No, but the manuscript tradition doesn't say that at all. And again, when you're arguing about Plato and Socrates, no one is claiming that those writers were writing perfect and inerrant. Um, and, but with the Bible, that's what they're claiming. So extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. And that sort of evidence is just not here. Yeah, I thought you raised like uh, a, a point that's super important. And that's, we may, our copies may get us back to the earliest copies that we have. So we might be able to reconstruct to a certain extent that fragment of John that we have from 40 years after John was written. Um, but that's still not the original John. We don't know what the original John was. We don't know what happened in that 40 years with all the copying that happened. And there was a whole process before John wrote his gospel that where stories were being passed around and sources were being exchanged and all that stuff could have been being changed and altered and exaggerated. And, um, you know, we see uh, a bunch of different sources uh, intermixed in John's gospel, especially like uh, the sort of consensus is there were two authors at least of John and that um, they use different sources and added different materials. You have doublets everywhere. So it, even getting you back to that fragment, which is the closest that we'll ever get unless we find the original autograph. That's the closest that we can reconstruct is not the same thing as the original document because we don't have access to that document. We only have access up to the earliest thing that we have. And I should say that there is uh, tangible evidence of these documents being changed. Um, in the manuscript tradition, yes, we see that, but we see that in the Bible itself. And one example I can give is the Synoptic Gospels. So if you've listened to this show, you know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered synoptic because they come from a source. And Mark um, is believed by most scholars to be the original. Um, and Mark is very simple. But if you read Matthew, Matthew will take the text of Mark word for word, almost, almost word for word, but then he'll add in um, things that embellish the story. So in the resurrection account in Mark, the women go to the tomb. Um, they find a young man. Um, they don't find Jesus. They run off scared and they don't say anything to anybody. But the same story in Matthew is told in very similar language. But Matthew says, well, that, I don't like that. So he adds in an earthquake and an angel descending from heaven. 
And this happens in Matthew over and over and over. So what you, you have in the very writing of the Bible itself is the author um, taking the original testimony of Mark and or the original document of Mark and altering it and exaggerating it for his own purposes. So, so yes, in the manuscript tradition, we see it being edited and changed. But even in the Bible itself, there's evidence of this. Yeah, I don't know if in the book he gets into um, the, like the priority of Mark, uh, Q. I mean, this is all fascinating stuff that really, this is evidence that actually does demand a verdict. It's essentially consensus that Mark is the earliest gospel. And that just makes sense because, like John said, you see Mark being used by um, Matthew and Luke and exaggerated in different ways, but like, but used verbatim in certain spots. Um, but then there's another source that um, is hypothesized that explains the way that Matthew and Luke agree but disagree with Mark, or Matthew and Luke have stories that are the same that aren't contained in Mark. And that's the Q source. And so that's another source that we have absolutely no access to except the Reconstruction. Um, and that Reconstruction, again, is based on the Gospels that we have. And also people use sometimes the Gospel of Thomas to reconstruct Q because uh, a lot of the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas, a saying gospel, that another gospel that he doesn't talk about that may be contemporaneous with these Gospels, some people think it's even earlier than some of the Gospels. So it's just weird. Like, it's this is just not a way historians speak about this stuff. And, uh, you know, John keeps saying it, and I guess I'll keep harping on it too. Like, it's frustrating. We're not historians ourselves, but listening to historians talk about it and reading um, historians because we want to uh, get good takes on this stuff, it's very frustrating to hear these weak arguments that are just not historically informed at all and are very misleading to the audience. Yeah, he's a... He's a pastor um, who's framing it in very simplistic, I would argue, almost talking down to the audience at times, but very simplistic manner to get you to the end point. But he's really crafty in what he's leaving out. Again, if you're interested in this stuff, like, like you shouldn't be going to Josh McDowell. There's, uh, there's a lot of great resources out there. You know, you can take a, you can take a course, an introduction to the New Testament uh, from from Yale University on uh, on YouTube. I actually have a quote from Bart Ehrman that kind of like is an overview of some of this stuff too that I thought would be interesting. Yeah, so go for it. He says, It's true, of course, that the New Testament is abundantly attested in the manuscripts produced throughout the ages. But most of these manuscripts are many centuries removed from the originals, and none of them perfectly accurate. They all contain mistakes. Altogether, many thousands of mistakes. It is not an easy task to reconstruct the original words of the New Testament. And that's from one of the most eminent New Testament scholars um, in the world. So he, he knows what he's talking about. It's not an easy process as Josh McDowell makes it seem. Let's assume for a second that Josh McDowell is right. Let's, just for the sake of argument, let's say that the original autographs are exactly what we have today in our King James Bible, that it's 100% accurate to what the original author wrote. I'm not sure what that really gets you, because we have right now people that are alive today, you can go and interview them, that say they were sucked up onto a UFO spaceship and uh, anally probed by aliens. Uh, there's people right now that claim they saw Bigfoot. Uh, there's people they saw the Virgin Mary. I mean, this is testimony now. 
We're not talking about ancient documents. And do we believe them? No, we don't believe them because there's not sufficient evidence. So I think what we're saying is twofold. The arguments he's making about the accuracy of the manuscript tradition, they really don't hold water. I mean, the best, it, the best it's going to get you is to shoot down people that are not very knowledgeable about the manuscript tradition, to, that people that think that there was just thousands of years between the writing and the first copies. That's not true. But when he's talking about something about the fact that we have all these manuscripts, um, that it somehow like will bolster the truth of what the, the New Testament actually says, that's where it falls flat. Because I think if you're really going to go by that methodology, you should be a Mormon um, or maybe like a Scientologist. Like we, we can actually watch L. Ron Hubbard uh, talk like on video. Like we have film of him talking and we have his actual writings um, and we're like super high degree of confidence, way more than anything in the New Testament, what L. Ron Hubbard wrote and what uh, Joseph Smith wrote. In the, in the context of Mormonism. I mean, so I, I saw Bob Marley talk about uh, he saw uh, the holes in Haley Selassie's hands from uh, because he was the reincarnated Christ. So, I mean, that's pretty good testimony from Bob Marley. Um, I, I did, yeah, like it doesn't, like, tes- like eyewitness testimony is extremely unreliable. It's extremely right. unreliable. Even in court, it's not the best testimony. Like people Absolutely. miss, like misremember things they see things that aren't there there and will be completely convinced like uh completely convinced that they saw what they thought they saw it's not that they have to be liars um they can totally believe something that's wrong yeah and Um, i should say that hearsay is not even allowed in court and the the best the best you're going to get with the new testament is that it's hearsay because it doesn't even claim to be written by an actual eyewitness um so that's where I think it falls apart. I think like if you were to even grant Josh McDowell, like be, be as charitable as you can and grant him, um, you know, the accuracy of these manuscripts, which, which of course we're not doing. If, you, um, if you've listened to this show, you know that uh, there's all kinds of problems with it, virtually everything he's saying, and we're going to continue to break that down. But even if you do grant it all, um, I'm not really sure where that gets you because you're still just with... People making supernatural claims. Um, and, and I would say a supernatural claim from hearsay thousands of years ago is even less valid than uh, L. Ron Hubbard or Joseph Smith or someone claiming that they were abducted by aliens today. Because if that's, if that's the standard you're going on, which is really what he's harping about, like how soon do we have the, what the author said and this and that? Well, like I said, there's people that we can go and talk to right now that claim these things. Uh, and maybe Josh McDowell believes that these people were abducted by aliens. And maybe because if he's using this type of a standard, I think he would have to. Yeah, it's strange. Um, it doesn't, he, he doesn't really go into um, the authorship which is like a whole nother conundrum because like you said, like we're talking about, um, it's not even like, uh, someone that heard from eyewitness testimony. It's like, and then they're like impartial to, uh, the result. It's like, Oh, somebody told me about this miracle. I now believe like, and have faith that this miracle not only is true, but also is going to like have eternal consequences for me. Let me write you a polemic to tell you why you should also believe that. And 
That's really, that's honestly what the testimony is. Like, because it's not Josephus writing and saying, oh, there's this crazy group of uh, religious nuts, and oh, by the way, their savior rose from the dead. That would be someone that's not a believer. It would be a more impartial uh, witness to the miracle. But if you're someone that is already uh, someone that believes by faith in the miracle when you're telling the account, it makes it even less. Part of um, what historians do is they look at the person as bias. And if you're uh, dispassionate, you tend to be taken more as more historical. It's very right. difficult when someone's writing you a uh, religious polemic to uh, try to take it as a historical document. It's just not that. It's trying to convince you to believe something. Based on what Josh McDowell is saying, I'm struggling with why I should take the Bible more seriously than I should take an alien abduction claim. Am I off base there? No, I actually think that's a good point. I mean, I was thinking that too. Like, if we're if the claim is the closest well it, you have a better claim with Joseph Smith who is the the person that wrote the text is actually the one that got the tablet and spoke to Moroni um and so you know that's a real immediate that's not an that's not someone that spoke to an eyewitness uh or even an eyewitness that's someone who is the actual person or Muhammad who wrote the Quran or you know Dick the Quran was dictated to Muhammad, he was the one that the, the book was dictated to. So conceivably, that's there's no chain of people to go through. But the Bible, there is a chain. It's not Jesus writing down Jesus's words. It's someone that is not an eyewitness, like we said. So it's someone that maybe got some information from eyewitnesses, but is not an eyewitness themselves that's writing down these words. So like, yeah, when it comes to the reliability test that he's setting up, all of these other false claims that we would say, well, we don't believe those either. Josh McDowell doesn't believe Islam is true. He doesn't believe that Mormonism is true. Um, like you said, I, I'm skeptical that he believes alien abductions are true. Maybe he does. But all of those things would have equal validity by the standard right. that he's setting up. Yeah. Right. I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't see any difference. And I would say that those things are. There's more reason to believe someone that you can go and speak to now that says they were abducted by aliens. Yeah, by his own by his own methodology, um, like we should really believe alien abductions. That's just one example. I mean, any supernatural claim, um, because his his methodology seems to say if you can get really close, like really accurately from the person that originally made the claim, um, then that's more that reason to believe true. it. Yeah. And uh, and that's really like everything he's saying up to now is driving toward that point that he's going to make. And um, I just think, okay, like, even if I grant you that, I don't think it still gets you to us believing the supernatural claims. Yeah, I think you're right on point with that. One of the complaints is what? You don't have the originals. Well, of course you don't have the originals. Jesus walked and lived on the face of the earth 2,000 years ago. And back then they didn't have the papers I've already described that they have today. But it, it's not whether you have the originals or not. But do you have the copies where you can recreate the originals? And this is what I was talking about, uh, that we do have the copies. We do have the material. With, to me, it totally satisfies my mind that we are able to recreate the original. In fact, you take the Nestle's New Testament Greek. It's probably about half the size of my Bible here and thicker. 
And any question in doubt that what we have today was not the original. Now think of this. In the Greek, Nestle's New Testament is less than one half of one page. Now when that comes to literature of antiquity, that's miraculous. That's phenomenal. And so the issue is not whether do you have the originals. I mean, at that time, nobody has the originals. The question is... Is there sufficient manuscripts to recreate the autographer, the original? And with the New Testament, I say, yes, we do. So here's something that we've talked about before, and we don't have to spend a huge amount of time on it, but I think it's important to bring it up. If you're going to make a claim about an inerrant scripture, that's, I mean, first of all, why would there be textual variance at all if your scripture is inerrant? If God is uh, or inspired, if God inspired the original text, which he doesn't make that claim here, but I feel like is a claim that he he would make if if Jesus and the Bible are the truth of God. Um, if that text were inspired and if God had a stake in protecting it, why would there be textual variants at all? Why wouldn't there be like miraculous preservation of the original text, like in the way that you would see? Like... It doesn't seem like that, you know, when we're talking about the miracles that are in the Bible, it doesn't seem like that uh, big of a miracle to preserve the original text. But instead, what we see, like you said, is extreme variations in the earliest uh, copies that we have. And we see, you know, 300,000 or whatever it is, textual variants in the New Testament. Um, you know, every time someone counts it, the count is higher. Yeah, I, th I think the way he discounts the supernatural in the preservation, I mean, what comes to mind is um, Bart Ehrman in one of his debates, he said over and over, he said, if God did the miracle of inspiring the text, why didn't he do the miracle of preserving the text? Yeah. And so what true. and what Josh McDowell, um, he's kind of laughing, of course we don't have the originals. I'm like, wait a second, you believe that this is like a supernatural thing. So, so yeah, like, of course we don't have the originals. That makes sense, like, if you're talking from, like, a strictly historical standpoint. But um, if you're talking from the standpoint of a believer that thinks that, like, God wants us to obey every word in this book, and all we have is a recreation of what the original said, an he won't say this, but, an like, an obviously imperfect recreation, which is why... Scholars have been debated the, all these things for, for millennia. We simply don't know what the original said on many important doctrines. Uh, we've gone through this. If you want to go back and listen to our series, Bible Blunders and a Church Divided, we go through a lot of these. Um, and yeah, there's all kinds of problems on major doctrines, which is the whole reason that the church is divided, because we simply don't know either what the original said or Sometimes it's ambiguous. We don't even know uh, what they were talking about or what the point they were trying to make. Or sometimes they're just silent on, on key important issues. Like, is the Trinity important? I would say the Trinity is important if you're a Christian. And the views on the Trinity from the very beginning of Christianity have been a, a total slugfest with people um, claiming the other side is, is heretical all the way up till the modern day, to the point where the average Christian, um, if you ask them about the Trinity, they have no idea how to articulate it, or they articulate it in a way that's uh, that's historically been considered a heresy. And why is that? Well, it's because the New Testament doesn't speak clear on that. And yeah, I think it, it's important to have what the original said, so we understand what the intention is. 
Yeah, I mean, the only thing I was going to say is, like, this is one of the earliest critiques that Islam had of Christianity. And it was that <clears throat> your text is not put together in a scientific way. Our text is. Your text was not preserved. Our text is. And some of the earliest textual, like, the, the sort of, like, um, proto-textual critics... Um, were Islamic critics who were ripping apart the Bible because they found all the contradictions. Um, and obviously they had a bias and a, um agenda in the way that they were ripping it apart, but some of their work is still pretty interesting and accurate. Ehrman's question is perfect. If it was inspired miraculously, um, if it's supposed to be inerrant in the original document, which is what the claim of the, um, like we spoke about before, what's the claim of the uh, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy makes, that the original documents, I mean, it makes some crazy claims. It actually says the original documents are inerrant, and it also says basically we have the original documents. Like Now, both of those things are false, and I think we've showed that. If you're claiming that the original documents that we don't have are inerrant, then why would you not have a God that is protecting them um, so that we still have that preserved copy? Yeah. And, and he doesn't answer that. I think that is the key question here. And I'm even willing to grant him things just for the sake of argument that I still don't think it really gets you very far. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. So there's two, there's, there's just two overarching problems. One, he's setting up a standard that doesn't prove what he's trying to prove. And two, even that standard is, is really a failure. He, right. his, he's, his, he doesn't really even measure up to his own standard if you're really being critical about it. In comparing with secular literature, for example, Caesar and the Gallic Wars, 10 manuscripts. But nobody in the university questions that Caesar fought the Gallic Wars, and for a long time he was the only one that ever survived that wrote about it. A thousand years, the closest manuscript after he died, and there's only 10 manuscripts. Of Plato, seven manuscripts. Of Tacitus, the uh, Roman historian. Right now, there's less than 20 manuscripts that have ever survived. And then Thucydides, many people consider Thucydides one of the most accurate historians of antiquity. And yet there's only seven manuscripts. And those are 1,300 years after Thucydides died. Herodotus is eight manuscripts in about 1,400 years with um, Pliny the Younger. There's about seven manuscripts. With Sophocles, 193, which is one of the most. Euripides, nine. The men and women. Aristotle, there were 13. Now it's up to 49 they've discovered. Well, with the New Testament, just the New Testament, in the new evidence that demands a verdict, I have now been able to document 24,633 manuscripts of just the New Testament. I never even knew they existed. Uh, so he's he's kind of reiterating this, the same point that he made before. But what he's not saying is that those other uh, documents are from historians. And there wasn't a church of Euripides that was copying the same document over and over and over again. But what he's not saying is those 24,000 documents are almost all based on a copy that was at the time as rare as any of those other copies are. So it doesn't mean anything. Like he's talking about thousands of copies, but he's not telling you 
when those copies are from, which is the key important part of this. Those copies are not early copies. We have just a handful of super early copies um, of the New Testament. Just a handful. To exactly the same as all those other historians have. It wasn't until Christianity became the official religion of the largest world power at that time that we started to get this explosion of copies all over the place. But that explosion of copies is in no way bolstering the claim of the authenticity of the original manuscripts. Yeah, it's like a flashy object to distract you. Like, it, it really doesn't prove anything. Like, the the number of copies is just a red herring. It's an interesting fact, but it doesn't have anything to do with the historical authenticity of the original document or whether we have access to even that original document, both of which are questions that he doesn't really seem to be too concerned with right now. But I think it makes sense for him to start with the number of documents in antiquity and this is papyrus and how it's constructed because that's the secondary question but he moves it to the front because that's like he can impress everyone with how many documents there are and we have so many copies and you'll hear another crazy claim in a minute that like is really meaningless um it like these things should all be contextualized in the Roman Christian Empire that happened. That's like, and the explosion of Christianity as like the face of the world, essentially. Um, we have a whole lot of documents produced in a time period that's really far from the original events um, and are like copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of the earliest documents. So when you say 24,000, like that's including medieval copies, I'm sure, of the text. That's including, you know, copies from the 4th century, um, copies from the 5th century. And those are just, they, those are hundreds and hundreds of years after the events. When he's talking about all of these copies that exist, another way to say what he's saying is Christianity became um, a huge uh, world religion. I mean, that's what he's saying there. It became a huge world religion, which is why we have all the copies. But again, that doesn't get you any closer to talking about the authenticity of the original manuscripts, which is, which is what he's trying to do. Um, any copies that you have you know, from the 6th century have absolutely nothing to do with the validity of what the original said. Um, so, again, it's, I, it really is, I think, a, a misleading factoid that is really impressive when he puts it up on, on the slide and he shows like this huge stack, 24,000 compared to like seven of the other people. But what he doesn't tell you is that that's completely irrelevant to the ultimate point that he's trying to make. Yeah, I mean, I think this is akin to like a sort of another apologist trick where they <clears throat> always used to say, you know, the Bible is the biggest selling book in the world, or it's like sold more copies than any other book, or it's read been read more than any other book of all time. And it's like, well, yes, it was the like the book that was like when the discovery of the printing press happened, it was literally like the only book that was being printed. <laughs> you know, like there there's a huge like productive process behind the reason for these things. But then I also always thought like, well, what happens when like another book takes over its place? Like what are people gonna say then? Like, oh, uh, yeah, the Book of Mormon is the biggest selling book of all time. But, you know, Christianity is still – like, it, it's just a weird argument. It doesn't, like, prove or disprove anything. Yeah, I was going to make that – selling book. I was like, going to make that same point. So let's say we go uh, 2,000 years into the future from now and um, Dianetics by L. Ron Hubbard 
uh, you know, became the official religion of uh, of the new America. And uh, and then it spread throughout the whole world. And we just have like millions of copies of Dianetics all over the place. Would that be somehow evidence that Dianetics is true? No. Um, and like I said, there's much better evidence that Dianetics was was written by the by the original author. Like we have so much evidence that L. Ron Hubbard wrote that and um, much more than, you know, we don't even know who the authors of the New Testament were, much less being able to prove it. Um, but but with Dianetics, we know exactly who wrote it. We know exactly when it was written. And we have pretty much like the word for word words from L. Ron Hubbard. So by again, by his logic, like we really should all be Scientologists now. And we had a way more accurate production process to get us the copies of Dianetics now that would be closer to the original copy. There wasn't computer printing when L. Ron Hubbard published his book, but like publishing was pretty accurate. Um and then the other ironic thing is I'm sure you could find copies of Dianetics that have spelling mistakes in it or textual variants because even publishers make mistakes like that. Right. Um, even now with the production process, even with computers, I still sometimes find uh, spelling mistakes in books. And uh, um, yeah, ironically, someone uh, there was an apologist who was criticizing Bart Ehrman's take on uh, – a passage where he was talking about a textual variant where the scribe clearly jumped either jumped ahead or uh or like quoted the same word twice uh, i think jumped ahead and like ended up missing part of the quote and the author in his piece criticizing airman did the same thing with an airman quote and like miss, took a chunk out thereby like proving that that can still happen now like when people are reading quotes and and there's like the same word appears twice um but yeah, I think your point is like totally apt about Scientology. I think that's a perfect analogy. Like, it doesn't mean that it's true just because we all of a sudden have a, a huge production of uh, copies of... It says more about who was producing the copies of the books or the era that the books were produced in or the era that the texts were produced in. It doesn't tell you really much about the truth of the initial account. Now, let me show you how unique... That 24,633 is. Is there any of you here that know the number two book in manuscript authority in all of history? The New Testament's number one. Any of you know the number two book in all history in manuscript authority? Homer's the Odyssey. The Iliad by Homer. 643 manuscripts. That's number two in all history. And yet it's interesting. To this day, I've yet to find a teacher or a professor that knew that. I didn't even know it until I set out to make a joke of it. Just number-wise. The reason that uh, he can't find anyone that knows that is because it's irrelevant and not important. Um, it's, it, it doesn't mean anything. No one's claiming the Iliad is inerrant and perfect. And you know what? There are scholars all over the place that debate what's original and what's not original in Homer's work. If Josh McDowell cared about any kind of history outside of history that he thinks proves the Bible, he would know that. Yeah, it's totally okay to question the legitimacy of Homer or Shakespeare or even Dickens or anything. It happens all the time in academia. And um, But you know what? Like Ben said before, that type of scrutiny, according to people like Josh McDowell, is not allowed to, on the Bible. But now you can do this. Take every Bible and destroy it. Take every manuscript and burn it. 
destroy every manuscript, destroy every Bible, and within 150 to 250, 300 years of Christ, closer than any other literature of antiquity, I can reconstruct all but 11 verses of the entire New Testament. He said, no, wait a minute. Without any manuscripts? Without any but? Yeah. Throw them all away and burn them. And I can go back within 150 to 300 years and reconstruct. Say, so how do you do that? I discovered that the early church fathers, when they would write letters to the churches, or they would give sermons, they would write out and copy quotes out of the scriptures. Uh, well, just like I do. Uh, I will copy sometimes a half chapter out through my notes. And they have sometimes, they would copy three, four, five chapters of the scriptures in corresponding with the churches. And I've now been able to document 86,429 quotations from just the early church fathers. And taking these 86,400 and some quotations... You can, without any Bible's manuscript or anything, you can reconstruct all but 11 verses. First of all, there's a lot of quotations from the early church fathers that are not in the Bible at all. So you would be adding a lot. Uh, um, the testimony of Papias comes to mind. And, um, you know, we can get into that also. But I, I think he's, this is completely misleading, what he's saying here, because he's not telling you that the church fathers quote a lot of stuff that uh, we don't find in the Bible now. And they quote a lot of stuff that is um, extra-biblical, like um, uh, apocryphal, and things that used to be considered scripture, like the Shepherd of Hermes or the Book of Enoch, that is no longer considered scripture or only considered scripture in certain um, denominations. Yeah, it's a crazy thing. Well, I mean, first of all, this, is, this means nothing. I almost feel like he's like a magician that's just running distractions. Look at look over here, watch like my hand and I'm going to like, you know, it doesn't really matter that you could reconstruct it. Um I don't understand why the date is like <clears throat> moving when he talks about it. He says 150 to 300. So is it in 150 years after you could do it or is it 300 years after? Like I don't understand that that part either. Um and yeah, like, first of all, you wouldn't have a text to reconstruct it. We maybe need to do, like, a whole episode on this because I feel like it would be interesting to look at what the church fathers actually say. Because, like John said, they quote not just the Bible. They quote other books that they considered scripture. They quote the Bible in a way that is not accurate to uh, different versions of the text that we have. It, like, there's definitely textual variants in the church fathers as well. And they believed a lot of crazy stuff. That, that Josh McDowell would condemn as heretical or, or before orthodoxy, and there was definitely some unorthodox positions that the, the earliest church fathers had. And then John talked, too, about early testimonies from people like Papias that contradict what the Bible says, uh, have different, like the death of Judas. And then, you know, I mean, if you're going to do this type of reconstruction, then you should look at the other Gospels that were floating around during this time period, too. There are definitely other Gospels that we know that could be contemporaneous with the Church Fathers. The whole premise of his whole argument doesn't make any sense the more I think about it. Um, first of all, when he talks about the early Church Fathers, he's talking about the or what later became known as the Orthodox Church Fathers. The, the heretics are not 
in that. So if you threw the whole Bible out, it, like you said, if you burn every copy of the Bible, now you're left with just what ancient people said. So if you're talking about what the quote-unquote heretics said, okay, what did you know how early Marcion is, Ben? Marcion yeah. is early. That's in fact, some, some people think that Marcion uh, th- like was one of the uh, authors of the original Gospels. Um, or that, or that they're using Marcion as a source in the for the Synoptic Gospels, and uh, Marcion was considered a heretic. The premise of what he's saying is wrong because he's only pulling out the people that later became considered Orthodox. Um, because if you add if you add Marcion in there, Marcion would say, yeah, well, the God of the Old Testament um, was evil, uh, and of course he doesn't put that in there. So, so my point is. You wouldn't, if you were going to reconstruct the reconstruct the New Testament from what the earliest quote unquote Christians said, you would have to add Marcion in there. You would have to add the Gospel of Thomas. You would have to add tons of Gnostic Gospels in there. Um, you would not come out with the New Testament that we have now. You would come out with a totally different document um, that has all kinds of stuff that Josh McDowell wouldn't be happy with. The very premise of what he's saying is assuming an orthodoxy to begin with. Whereas if you didn't have the Bible at all, you wouldn't have orthodoxy and you would have to be open to what every quote-unquote Christian said. Yeah, I mean, this is why, in some ways, what the people were saying on the street is more accurate than what Josh McDowell's saying. Because like, there was a process of orthodoxy becoming orthodox. And there was it wasn't one stream of ideas that was out there that everyone that was Christian believed. It was a bunch of different stuff that was slowly whittled into what became the orthodox position. And so you have people that are proto-orthodoxy, that have the orthodox position or have orthodox positions before there was orthodoxy. But that's not the same thing as saying that they were accepted as orthodoxy during that time. They weren't necessarily. And even in the Bible, you have rivalries between people. You have Paul talking about other teachers. You have Paul seemingly going against James. You have James seemingly writing against Paul. You have... um, you know, Paul talking about uh, Paul fighting with Peter. It just makes a lot of false assumptions. It assumes this sort of like uh, monolithic Christianity that existed at that time. It assumes that you could recreate the scripture that you don't have just by the quotations from early church fathers, which you would only know selectively what to choose if you had the Bible beforehand. Otherwise, you would end up with a bunch of other stuff that's not scripture that they're saying is scripture. You would have different books that they claim are part of the Bible because there was no canon when the early church fathers were writing that you would have to contain, like the Shepherd of Hermes. I mean, during that time period, if you're reconstructing like you're in that time period and not just like playing a false game of history, then you would have to include, yeah, all those heretics, like all those people that the proto-church fathers that we now take their letters and say they were right, you would have to take the people that they were writing against and take anything that they were saying and say, well, maybe this is actually in the Bible too. Like that reductive process is just like complicates things even more. I guess the most charitable way to define what he's trying to say is that what became Orthodox Christianity uh, and the Bible that we have today is largely contained in what some early Christian, early church father said, which is really a meaningless statement because he's leaving out a bunch of other early Christians and he's leaving out a whole bunch of other texts. But I think it actually is a fascinating thought experiment if you were to just take the testimony of of the earliest Christians and then construct a holy document and see what you come up with. And uh, it wouldn't look like uh, the Bible that we have today. 
I mean, some of it would be definitely be in there, but you would have a lot of other stuff that people like Josh McDowell wouldn't be quite so happy with. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's really important, and it's a, a distinction that evangelicals and apologists will never make, but it's really important to understand that what even was orthodox in 300 by the time of um, Constantine's council and like the official canon was not necessarily the same thing that's in the original text, the the text that we don't have, and even like the the Bible that we do have, because orthodoxy was developing. Like we we've we've talked about it a lot on the show that there's a lot more when you start to break down the text and what people teach. There's a lot of it is these like structures that don't actually exist in the text, and those structures were built like during that time where orthodoxy was becoming orthodoxy, and. Um, so like John brought up the Trinity, the Trinity, like it was a complicated process to flush out that Orthodox position on the Trinity because it's not abundantly clear what the Orthodox position is according to the different gospels. They seem to have different positions on if Christ is submitting to the father, if he's greater than the father, if a Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, if a Holy Spirit is God, if they're three representatives of one God, if he's God's son. All these things are ambiguous in a lot of the Gospels, or very ambiguous in Mark, you know, the earliest Gospel. And a process of Christology happens. So, like, all of these things are, like, we shouldn't just assume that the orthodoxy that we have today existed in the early church. Um, But yeah, it would be interesting as a way to look at the early church fathers to try to reconstruct, like, what would the Bible look like if we took the, the early church fathers like add in a totality and took what they said as early witnesses uh, without using the Bible as a guide. Yeah, like I said, I think it actually is an interesting thought experiment. Uh, one example I just want to give to back up like our point here, um, Papias is an early church father, uh, extremely early. Um, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with um, the story of Judas in the Bible, but in the New Testament, but Judas... Um, after having betrayed Jesus, um, was so wrought with guilt that, and it's actually a pretty big contradiction in the Bible itself as to, um, you know, what Judas did with the money, and then he bought a field, um, and then he killed himself in the field, and there's there's two different versions of this story, but, but basically it has to do with that. Um, but there's another version of this that's quoted uh, by Papias, and I'll just read it. Judas walked about in this world a sad example of impiety, for his body, having swollen to such an extent that he could not pass where a chariot could pass easily, he was crushed by the chariot so that his bowels gushed out. That's a completely different um, story than what we have in the Bible. Um, It talks about Judas getting like enormously fat and um, basically getting hit by a chariot and uh, his bowels gushing out. And... Um, again, like taking Josh McDowell's thought experiment, boom, that's in the Bible. So, and, and by the way, we have almost nothing from Papias. So I imagine what else Papias talks about. And I should also say that it's Christians, a little bit off subject here, but since I'm talking about Papias, Christians use Papias as an example to claim that, um, Mark is coming from an actual testimony of the historical Peter. And this is, uh, the version of Judas' uh, death that um, 
that Papias understands, which is nothing like what we have in any of the Gospels. So again, if you're going to use Papias to, to authenticate the Gospel of Mark, you really have a problem because Papias clearly did not have the same Gospel of Mark that we have, or at least doesn't show any awareness of it. That's a little bit of a side. Aha, I'm going to complicate things even further. Because we don't even have Papias. We have Eusebius right. telling us what Papias said, if I'm correct. Right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So even that is a person once removed. We don't have the actual sources for Papias. We have Eusebius claiming Papias as like the witness that can basically link everything together with like uh, actual eyewitness testimony. And um, and you see this happen a lot, too. Like, oh, Polycarp told me this, and this guy knew this guy. And that's how we know, and he knew one of the disciples. Yeah. Uh, but Marcion was incredibly early, incredibly influential, um, and had a totally different view than what orthodoxy came to believe. So, so yeah, to the point, we don't have Marcion. We only have tiny little like tidbits, and we don't have Papias. And the reason we don't have that stuff is because that's not what became orthodoxy. But it didn't mean that it didn't exist. The most fascinating thing in the world to discover would be if we found more writings from Papias, more writings from Marcion, and other quote-unquote heretics in the early church. And then you'll find out yeah, these people that were probably also claiming apostolic authority and also claiming that their sources went back to the original. We know from the Gospel of Luke that many people were claiming to have the accurate gospel. Um, and we don't have access to any of that. And what we do have is all over the map. And that's kind of the point I want to keep coming back to. The, it's, it's not about the amount of copies that we have in later centuries. It's about what we can derive from what we have from the first century. And what we have from the first century is all over the map. And um, it's re that's really the most fascinating stuff in New Testament studies, because you're, then you're really getting to the earlier stuff, and uh, which is one of the reasons why the Gospel of Thomas is so fascinating, because we have the entirety of the Gospel of Thomas. Some scholars believe that the Gospel of Thomas is super early, that it could even predate Mark. Now, I don't necessarily hold that view. I haven't really studied it enough to get into it. But I'll tell you this, there are certain verses in the Gospel of Thomas that clearly seem more archaic. I don't know if that's the word they... They seem a simpler and more ancient version of the verse than what we find in the synoptics. And to me, that's one of the most fascinating things in New Testament studies. Not harping on, you know, medieval manuscripts uh, as some kind of evidence for the truth of orthodoxy. Um, man, like to me, it doesn't get any more stale and dull than that. Yeah, there used to be like a saying in evangelicalism, like if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. And I think that that's been totally disproven in the last probably 100 years of uh, biblical scholarship. When you find a, a document that they think was written in the 3rd century, like a Gnostic gospel, that doesn't mean that those ideas started in the 3rd century. Like, those right. ideas were percolating before that. And you know what? You find Gnostic ideas that are in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You find Gnostic ideas. Like, Gnosticism is just a name that we've given to certain ideas, like, to classify them in studies. Like, they're not necessarily a coherent, like, group of people that were Gnostics at that time. Well, there's, um, Gnostic, there's Gnostic influence in the New Testament itself. But John, it's, not yeah. just, it's not just Gnosticism, though. I mean, you have Docetism, Adoptionalism. Yeah. Uh, you have all these heresies. The Gospel of John is both 
kind of endorsing docetism and also speaking against it, which is part of the reason that a lot of scholars think that there was a pretty heavy redaction process going on, you know, once orthodoxy took over to try to correct some of these problems. Um, but yeah, that's what, to me, like the real action in New Testament studies has to do with getting into the earliest um, minds of the believers as early as you can possibly get. And the, and the more that we dig up and the more that we peer into that universe, um, the more diversity we find, not the more orthodoxy we find. And that's yeah. where I think Josh McDowell is wrong. Yeah, I think that's the biggest discovery um, is how explosively diverse early Christianity was, how it was not a coherent group of people that all had some sort of an orthodoxy. For example, the Apostle Paul, like Paul's genuine letters in the in the New Testament, like there's not a lot of information on, there's almost nothing about the historical Jesus. Christianity was like extremely adaptable. I think that's part of the reason it was successful. And I think like its beliefs were extremely divergent. So that's why you have different baptismal formulas in the Bible. That's why you have different practices in different communities. That's why, um, you know, and that's just in the Bible. And, and like I said, all these gospels that we're discovering, different religious beliefs that are all if you don't put them all under the banner of Christianity, it's only because you're reading backwards, like some sort of an orthodoxy that didn't actually exist at the time. So the interesting thing is to, to put yourself in that time and try to make sense of the diversity that was under the banner of Christianity. Um, and I think that's a much more interesting than perspective. Like, like John said, who cares about the medieval documents? Um, it's much more interesting to talk about the diversity of early Christianity. So, Ben, I'm kind of, uh, I was telling myself I'm not going to bring this up, um, but I think I'm going to bring it up. <laughs> um, and uh, you know what else you would have to include if we were going to talk about the testimony of the early church fathers? You may, you may guess what I'm going to say, but it has to do with Clement of Alexandria, yeah. um, the secret gospel of Mark. And it actually brings up an interesting point because I almost um, brought it up before and then was like, uh, <laughs> oscillating probably for the same reason as you. Yeah. So, uh, there's a whole story here and I'm not going to get into it, but if you're interested and we're definitely going to do episodes on this in the future, but the secret gospel of Mark, um, it, it was a, uh, a scholar named Morton Smith who claims to have found a letter from Clement of Alexandria, um, tucked away in a library um, and he photographed it and then, and then moved on and then the letter was lost. And it, it claims to have Clement of Alexandria talking about a version of the Gospel of Mark that he had and he was talking about um, whether or not it was genuine and he talks about um, how Jesus was laying naked with a young man um, and teaching him all the wisdom of, of the world or something to that effect. And... Um, Many scholars, uh, I don't know if you could even say it was a consensus, but many scholars believe this to be a forgery by Morton Smith himself, one of the few people who would have been able to actually produce a document like that because he was an absolute brilliant um, scholar. So many scholars believe that this is not genuine, and some scholars think it is genuine, and some scholars are just on the fence with no opinion about it. But again, using Josh McDowell's 
uh, criterion here, you'd have to include that because yeah. because we you know like that document is just as dubious as many other documents we have. Um, and I, so again, you would have to add that into the Bible too. So now on top of every, on top of Judas getting really fat and exploding, being in your Bible, now we also have gay Jesus in the Bible. And I think many modern evangelicals would have a big problem with that. And many other people would, uh, find that totally liberating. Yeah. And I mean, I think like, again, it's, if you're making the claim that he's making, then you really have, you can't construct um, something like with the assumption of orthodoxy and then make some sort of a claim that it's like, oh, it was supernaturally, like, that's sort of like the the subtext of what he's saying. Like, look, it was supernaturally protected. We could have even reconstructed it with just the church fathers. Well, no, we couldn't because we don't have the document. So like we said, we would have to take everything. Um, and then, like, that's not a problem. That just gets you to, like, there's a lot of diversity in early Christianity. But if you are holding to some, like, inerrant orthodoxy that was existed in the original text, um, then his claim, like, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, just let me wrap up. I mean, all of this that we've been saying here at the end is um, we're just arguing against this case that he's saying the New Testament was so well-preserved that if we didn't have any manuscripts, we could still reconstruct it just with the church fathers. And we're saying, how ridiculous is that? Because you wouldn't, you wouldn't know to include only the quote-unquote orthodox text. You would have to include everything. And then you would end up with a book that has all the quote-unquote heresies in it as well. Um, so I think his argument really falls flat. Um, but again, this is why serious historians don't take Josh McDowell seriously. Um, Ben, I think this is a good stopping point. We've gone on for a long time. We have a lot more to say about this, but why don't we pick it up in the next episode? Sounds good. Yeah, this is a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. Hope you guys are as well. And uh, until next time, this is the Skeptics Bible Project saying, see you later. Good night, all. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at Skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com.